Welcome to the World Geography Podcast. This is Thomas Larson. The theme of this episode is Memento Mori, Latin for Remember Your Death. Memento Mori is the practice of keeping your death before your eyes so that you may live a more fulfilling life. Through this practice, we can hopefully enter a healthier relationship with death and live a better life in return. Seneca, the famous Greek Stoic philosopher, once wrote that, quote, it takes a whole life to learn how to die, unquote. It takes a whole life to learn how to die. Seneca was famous for giving frank advice to his acquaintances, quote, it is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if it were all well invested." Americans are notorious for wasting time and not really keeping stock of their lives. Have you ever found yourself in a class or meeting, flipping through social media and looking up, wondering what has been happening around you? I certainly have. Our constant preoccupation with social media has negatively impacted our mental health. A 2017 study in clinical psychological science found that iGen adolescents spend more time on screens than off of them. More exposure to social media activities increases likelihood of depression and suicide. Adolescents who are on social media for more than five hours per day are 66% more likely to think about, plan for, or attempt suicide when compared to those who long on just one hour per day. If you ever have such thoughts, you do have access to all kinds of helpful resources. You can always go to the University of Northern Iowa Counseling Center. For more information, just go to counseling.uni.edu. That is counseling.uni.edu. Or you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. As the weather gets colder, it becomes essential to reflect on how we are spending every minute of our daily lives. Too often, we have difficulty coming to grips that one day we will die. Americans especially have had an unhealthy relationship with death. We are constantly fed information about how to avoid aging and extend our lives. That is why memento mori is so important. Remembering our death may encourage us to finally change the things in our lives that are not working for us. Cultures throughout the world express memento mori in different ways, including Buddhists and Sufi mystics. I've been interested in how people from various cultures keep death before their eyes. The famous poet Jim Harrison said it best, quote, Death steals everything except our stories, unquote. While reflecting on Memento Mori in South America, I realized that people undergo multiple deaths before the final one. We undergo deaths to our preconceptions, deaths to aspects of our identity, and deaths to one particular way of doing things. In the context of South America, we will examine how different cultures 
come to grips with the end, the end of one's life, the end of one's career, and the end of nature. By the end of the episode, you will hopefully enter a healthier relationship with the many manifestations of death and thus embark on a more fulfilling life. We will start with the type of death we are most familiar with, the end of life. One of the most interesting books I've read this year was called From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. The author is this great punk rock mortician named Caitlin Doty. One quote that stood out to me was this, quote, At almost any location in any major city on earth, you are likely standing on thousands of bodies. These bodies represent a history that exists often unknown beneath our feet. Unquote. To illustrate this point, Doty mentioned that 3,500 bodies were uncovered in 2015 when a new crossrail station was being built in London. Indeed, death is embedded within the geography of everyday life. We just don't notice it. Geographers have a name for this realm of study, necrogeography. Necrogeography examines death in the landscape. Necrogeographers might study religious symbolism in cemeteries and how returning to cemeteries facilitates social memory and builds community. They might also uncover ways in which different cultures prepare the deceased for their final resting place. I think necrogeography is one of the most underappreciated subjects in the discipline. For example, a group of necrogeographers led by Alexa Alaika studied human sacrifice among the Mochi people. The Mochi lived around 1,400 years ago in the Waka, Colorado, a famous archaeological site in Peru. Waka, Colorado contains a sacred pyramid upon which ritual human offerings were made. As part of the modern era, we cringe from the idea of sacrificing human lives. But when we remove our preconceptions, we might gain a clearer picture of why indigenous groups in this part of Peru did so. What Alaika and colleagues found was that the Mochi did not sacrifice humans for the satisfaction of killing. Rather, human sacrifice became integral to empowering places and bringing people together. Each sacrificed human came from a different line of work, including craftspeople and herders. This allowed people from multiple walks of life to strengthen memories, stories, and a sense of belonging. Death becomes an integral part of this people-place interaction. Now with that, I should put the disclaimer out that I do not condone human sacrifices. Don't do it. It is murder. Now, death rituals differ around the world. The Tana Taraha indigenous group of Indonesia practice the manene, in which they mummify bodies and keep them in their house for days, months, or years at a time. That is because the Tana Taraha believe that the bodies are still imbued with the spirits of their ancestor. In indigenous Mexican tradition, deceased infants called angelitos are believed to be without sin because they did not live long enough to make stupid decisions. Thus, they have a distinctive holiness and can serve as a medium between humans and the divine. Cultures in South America also have burial practices 
That may seem bizarre to us, but totally normal to them. Caitlin Doty, that mortician I was telling you about, describes traveling to La Paz, Bolivia, to learn more about death rituals in the area. Bolivia is a landlocked country in South America, home to the largest lake in South America called Lake Titicaca. La Paz itself marks the highest altitude capital city in the world. Bolivia is also known for its ñatitas, ñatitas, which translates to flat noses or little pug-nosed ones. Ñatitas are human skulls and mummified heads that some Bolivians keep for good fortune. The practice stemmed from the Aymara people, a prominent indigenous group in Bolivia. Evidently, each ñatita has a distinctive power and personality. Some will be best for medical problems, while other nyatitas will help students study for their college exams. People will adorn their nyatitas with hats, beanies, flowers, and even cigarettes. Celebrating the nyatitas has come into conflict with the Roman Catholic Church teachings. Roman Catholic priests in Bolivia have tried to discourage the practice, arguing that skulls should be buried and not worshipped. Regardless, Bolivians still carry on the Nyatita tradition. November 8th, which is coming up, is the festival of the Nyatitas, a time when owners will show off their collection of skulls and mummified heads. Bolivia's Nyatitas teach us an important aspect of memento mori. In the words of Caitlin Doty, quote, we are not beholden to our distance from and shame around death, unquote. In the United States, it used to be commonplace for people to have picnics in cemeteries next to the plots of their loved ones. People used to prepare the bodies themselves. They would brush the deceased's hair, wash them, and clothe them. It was seen as a necessary, intimate, and humane way to care for our loved ones. In Western countries, death has become an expensive business that separates families from the deceased. Thousands of dollars go into removing as much interaction with the deceased as possible. Cremation is an environmentally hazardous process, expending large amounts of fossil fuels. Other cultures, like Bolivia's Aymara, might question why we go so far out of our way to avoid such an important part of being human. Learning how various cultures grieve and celebrate this crucial next chapter can teach us how to live the good life and promote the good death. Let's transition from literal death to a different kind of death, the end of a career or one's reputation. Unfortunately, many of us will encounter a difficult period, a time which involves us losing our reputation or job. That experience can feel like a symbolic death by marking the end of our daily life as we originally knew it. Losing our job or having a tarnished reputation adds another term to memento mori. That term is called amor fati. Amor fati, which means to love one's fate. In other words, we practice amor fati when we make the best out of any situation, good or bad. We take things as they come and are indifferent to the circumstances. To live according to amor fati is to be like a fire with our experiences as the firewood. Both expensive wood and cheap wood will all burn the same. Napoleon Chagnon was an evolutionary anthropologist who gained fame 
for publishing Yanomamo, the Fierce People in 1968. The Yanomamo is an indigenous group that lives on 9.4 million hectares in the northern Amazon rainforest. Their homeland overlaps international boundaries between Brazil and Venezuela. Shagnon spent his career living among the Yanomamo, documenting their beliefs, behaviors, and habits. The Yanomamo were significant because they had such little contact with the outside world before Shagnon came onto the scene in the 1960s. As such, the Yanomamo offered a window into what life was like before civilization became more complex, industrial, and urbanized. Shagnon's doctoral research culminated in Yanomamo, the Fierce People, which is still one of the most important ethnographies ever written. The Fierce People was a controversial book. It challenged popular preconceptions about indigenous groups. Frequently, people incorrectly describe indigenous life as this peaceful, harmonious existence, the opposite of modern-day society. They ascribed a nobility to primitive societies, hearkening back to an ideal, fictional time when humans fought less and worked with the environment and not against it. In reality, the Yanomamo affirmed a darker side of the human condition. They would engage in violent behaviors, which, though on a smaller scale, were analogous to other expressions of modern-day violence. Studying the Yanomamo compelled Shagnon to believe that humans evolved this capacity for violence. The impulse to compete through war and violence conflict did not simply rise out of thin air. Genes for that trait were likely selected over and over again through human history. Napoleon Shagnon rose to prominence through his contribution to the field. He became part of the National Academy of Sciences and was an active leader in the American Anthropological Association. For many decades, he built upon the hypothesis that humans evolved the capacity for violence and other competitive behaviors. He returned frequently, making dozens of trips to Venezuela to live among the Yanomamo. Many scholars disagreed with him, and Shagnon would argue back, which often would make enemies. All was going well until a book came out in 2000 called Darkness in El Dorado. Written by Patrick Tierney, Darkness in El Dorado offered an array of damning accusations about Shagnon and another colleague. The most severe accusations were that Shagnon allegedly spread measles to the Yanomama and encouraged warfare among the tribes. At face value, the book was applauded for exposing such crimes. Tierney's text was especially praised for its extensive footnotes in the back. Shagnon lost multiple special appointments in professional organizations. His reputation had been raked across hot coals. Eventually, the American Anthropological Association investigated Tierney's claims. As it turned out, much of darkness in El Dorado was fabricated nonsense. Tierney's 60 pages of footnotes, declared too good to check, led mostly nowhere, and often contradicted the points that Tierney was trying to make. Looking more deeply into the situation, the team discovered that Tierney conspired with a sect of the Roman Catholic order, the Silesians, who feuded with Shagnon over his work. 
Tierney was also supported by anthropologists who had a personal vendetta against Shagnon. While little truth can be found in darkness in El Dorado, a different dark truth could be discovered among these serious conflicts of interest. The conspiracy took the academy by storm. Tierney was eventually disproven, and Shagnon's reputation was steadily restored. Shagnon composed a memoir about the situation called Noble Savages, My Life Among Two Dangerous Tribes, the Yanomamo and the Anthropologists. I hope you can appreciate the irony of accusing anthropologists of tribalism. Shagnon spent a decade defending himself against Tierney's false claims, calling it a blurry bad dream. Back in 2012, I had the pleasure of meeting Shagnon, hearing him share his stories of being with the Yanomamo, and then shaking his hand. At the time, his health was in poor shape. He was connected to an oxygen tank and confined to a wheelchair. It was clear that darkness in El Dorado aged him quickly. On September 23, 2019, he unfortunately died. I view Shagnon as someone who exemplified Amor Fati, the love of fate. Rather than remain falsely accused, Shagnon fought back. His career and reputation died a painful death within darkness in El Dorado, but he resurfaced under a new role, using his story as a cautionary tale of how important it is to check sources and implement due process. I believe that future generations of anthropologists, geographers, and others benefit greatly from Shagnon's life, in, in addition to many of his discoveries. That is why I venerate him here. Finally, we conclude with the death of an idea, nature as we once knew it. But first, I will introduce you to my favorite geographer, Alexander von Humboldt. Alexander von Humboldt was one of the first modern geographers to go out into the field and do geography. Humboldt lived between 1769 and 1859. Like many of you, Humboldt was curious about the world and sought to learn as much as he could about how it works. Doing so requires being out in the field as often as possible. Humboldt traveled around the globe, collecting various plant and animal specimens, as well as documenting the things that he experienced. During his expedition to South and Central America from 1799 to 1804, Humboldt came to a realization that changed how scientists think about the world. In 1802, Humboldt climbed Mount Chimborazo in modern-day Ecuador. Nearing the summit, Humboldt was the first documented European to climb up to 5,917 meters, more than 19,400 feet above sea level. It is around this time that Humboldt gained a new sense of clarity as he looked out to the landscape below. Yes, nature is a unified web, he thought. And humans are interlaced with all the plants, animals, airs, waters, and places. Picturing nature as this unified web was a precursor to how contemporary geographers think about planetary systems. And so when you think of nature, you might have a number of images come to mind. Trees, the sound of birds chirping, bubbling rivers, winter weather. Traditionally, we thought nature was that part of the world that was untouched by humans. 
We declared these uninhabited lands pristine wilderness. The idea of keeping nature pristine influenced the creation of national parks and conservation areas. Geographers and other scholars have done much more fieldwork following Humboldt's lead. We have been able to collect mountains of data about how the Earth system works, and we discovered that humans had more of an impact on the environment than originally thought. It became clear that conventional understandings of nature were just plain wrong. Humans not only influenced the climate, but their activities also transformed landscapes through economic development and contributed to rises in sea levels, heating of the ocean, along with declines in glaciers. In the Amazon, humans have been responsible for mass deforestation of the rainforest, an important scrubber of Earth's accumulating carbon dioxide. If we agree that Earth is a unified system, then we cannot think that humans have little or no impact on it. Our humble little town of Cedar Falls, Iowa, would look very different if it didn't contain networks of sewers, parking lots, a dam, buildings, and so on. The same goes for La Paz, Bolivia, Caracas, Venezuela, and Buenos Aires in Argentina. If all humans were shipped off to another planet, would Earth revert back to an earlier, more pristine environment, as though humans never set foot upon it? Likely not. That is because humans are a keystone species. A keystone species. That means that we've disrupted the system so much that it can no longer be reversed back to a prior state. In the 1980s, prominent environmentalists like Bill McKibben and Carolyn Merchant declared an end of nature. The end of nature means that there is no single square inch of Earth's surface, waters, and atmosphere that hasn't been affected, either directly or indirectly, by human activities. Not even Antarctica. Not even the places we have yet to fully explore, like much of the ocean bottom. The idea of nature died a long time ago, before humans rose to become a global keystone species. So if the idea of nature died, what happens to Humboldt's revelation on Ecuador's Mount Chimborazo? The web of nature concept gave rise to new ideas about complex Earth systems that factor humans into the equation. Geographers in particular have a distinctive ability to reason about wicked problems like climate change because they can piece together various parts of that puzzle to create the whole picture. To me, Mount Chimborazo symbolizes a geographer's journey to reach new heights of clarity and understanding about the world. In this exploration of South America, we considered the many ways Memento Mori, remembering our death, manifests through Nyatita skull rituals, Napoleon Shagnon's darkness in El Dorado conspiracy, and the end of nature. What becomes clear to me upon reflection is that life contains a myriad of ends, but with that comes an array of new beginnings. Well, that's all I have for this week's episode. Be curious, explore often, pursue meaningful things, and love your fate. Thank you. Thank you.